If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Jana Levin writes beautifully and intelligently about science. I've greatly enjoyed my two onstage discussions with her, one in 2016, the other in 2021. It's the second of these based around outgoing God that is recorded here. I have no right to expect it, but I must say it is really nice when a book interviewer has actually read the book, while of course appreciating the audience hasn't. It is such a pleasure to introduce Professor Richard Dawkins, who is a fellow of the Royal Society. He was the inaugural holder of the Simone Chair in Public Understanding of Science at Oxford, and of course is a legendary and influential evolutionary biologist, as well as one of the finest literary writers of nonfiction probably ever. And um, so if you will help me welcome Richard, it's such an honor. Please, please forgive me if I croak. No longer blame it on my stroke. Baseball ganglion on the right made me talk as if I'm tight. Today, on up-to-date reflection, I think I'll blame it on infection. So if I think to groans and squawking, Jan will have to do the talking. <laughs> we'll, we'll be speaking in rhyme for the rest of the conversation. Um, Richard, you have this new book out, Outgrowing God, which we're thrilled to be launching in your U.S. tour here. It's really such an honor for us. And um, you dedicate it to young people who are old enough to decide for themselves. I really appreciated that dedication. And I wanted to ask you, was there a time when you became aware of feeling old enough to decide for yourself? Uh, Not at any sudden time. The reason for saying that is that I'm very conscious of not wanting to indoctrinate. That's what they do. We don't indoctrinate. We try to open minds, try to encourage thinking for ourselves. I Just one anecdote about that. I was once at an atheist conference in the United States, and uh, it was a perfectly good conference, and there were quite a lot of children there, children of, of delegates to the conference, and they had a crash and, and sort of people looking after them and giving them toys to play with and things. And then at the end, the chairman on the stage said, all you little atheist children come up on the stage. I hit the roof. That's not what we do. We rather say when you're old enough to decide for yourself. So the book is dedicated to William, who is my only grandchild, born just a year and a half ago, and to all young people when they are old enough to decide for themselves. I remember I relayed the story to you that when my son had started uh, the sixth grade, maybe it was the fourth, we're trying to remember, and um, he came home from school and shouted, have you ever heard of Jesus? And we burst out laughing. And he's like, what is this? And so he runs out that day and he gets uh, Christopher Hitchens' God is not great. And I had the God delusion. And he begins to read and it really gave him a language to express himself. And um, they're very difficult books. This book is also very sophisticated. It's it's not a childish book. It's It definitely challenges the reader to think on a very deep level. Well, I'm glad of that. I'm glad it challenges them to think. But I hope it's not difficult. I mean, I, I hope it's written in a style that anybody from age 12 upwards can yes, understand. Yes, it's a pleasure to read, yeah, yeah. I can attest. So were you raised with a religious background? Well, it? only insofar as I went to school. And, and most schools in Britain are Church of England schools in one way or another. And so I had to go to chapel every Sunday. I ended up refusing to go to chapel, by the way. 
But um, How did that go down? Well, it was Anglican, so they're remarkably tolerant. I mean, <laughs> they, don't, they don't really believe it themselves. <laughs> uh, I've heard you say there are so many gods to not believe in. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, the, f the first chapter of Outgrowing God is about that. It doesn't list all of them, but it lists a fair number of them. And uh, evolution, as I understand it, when you began to learn about evolution, it also had an impact on this move away from... Yes, very much so. And that's kind of why the second, the whole of the second half of Outgrowing God is about that, is, is, is about evolution. Yes, it has a lot of science in it, actually. That's right. In, in the second half, it's all science. Now, in the one, first half, it's all, it's all atheism. One of the things that riles me often is when people say, but you believe in science, and that's just a kind of a faith. And you have this wonderful story in The God Delusion about one of your professors from Oxford oh. when you were studying biology that I think is this kind of archetypal story of the scientist behaving as a scientist and not as a believer. You want me to tell that story? I would love to. Okay. Well, I didn't give his name in The God Delusion, but he, he, he was, in fact, John R. Baker, who was a kind of elder statesman of my department. And um, he was a cytologist, which means he studied cell biology. And he did not believe that the Golgi apparatus, if you've done biology, you'll, you'll have learned about the Golgi apparatus, which is in all eukaryotic cells. He did not believe the Golgi apparatus was really there. He thought it was an artifact. And so we were all taught that the Golgi apparatus is probably an artifact, or at least there's no evidence, that, no good evidence that it, it exists. And then on a particular day when I was an undergraduate, a visiting scholar from America, a man called Novikov, came to give a lecture, and at the end of his lecture, John Baker strode to the front, shook his hand and said, my dear fellow, I wish to thank you. I've been wrong these 15 years. And we all clapped our hands raw, this demonstration of the way a proper scientist should behave when he is confronted with evidence that he's been wrong. That story I found so moving when I read it, and I remember my own experience of discovering science. I, I was not a student of the classics, but I studied some and some philosophy, and I was always frustrated that we were talking about what did some continental philosopher mean when he said, and we agonized over it, and there were papers, and, and I just felt one day I learned about the theory of relativity, and nobody was saying, what did Einstein mean? It was this gift that felt like it belonged to all of us. Absolutely. If, you're, if that was an attack on so-called continental philosophy, I'm all for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why don't we talk about continental chemistry? Why don't we talk about continental geology? Because geology and chemistry are universal. Mm. It's simply ge chemistry and geology. Mm. But, con but continental philosophy, everybody talks about and takes seriously. Why? Yes. So you have said something like, I'm not a diplomat. <laughs> I'm no diplomat. Actually, I think one of my problems is that I love truth too much. I said that, did I? Yes. <laughs> Good. I'm all for it. Good. <laughs> and I, I think that juxtaposing science as a vehicle to alter people's impressions of the supernatural or the mythical is, is a very powerful one. It gives people an alternative to thinking about individuated faiths, none of yes. which are reconcilable. Um, I mean, I'm perhaps a little unusual in thinking that whether or not a god exists is actually a scientific question. That doesn't mean that we'll ever be able to answer it by scientific means, but it is a scientific question in the sense that the universe in which we live would be a totally different kind of universe if it had been created by a supernatural intelligence rather than if it came into being by the unaided laws of physics. 
you speak a lot about the wonder of science. And I also think this is something that's misunderstood, which is that science seems cold and brass. And I remember as a child having that impression, thinking science was cold and uncreative and heartless. And, um, and you really appeal to a sense of wonder in your writing. I try to do that in all my books, but one particular book, Unweaving the Rainbow, is especially aimed at that misunderstanding. The title comes from Keats, who upbraided Newton for spoiling the poetry of the rainbow by explaining it. And so I wanted to make the point that not only the rainbow, but everything else that's beautiful becomes even more beautiful if we understand it, rather than if we shroud it in self-satisfied mystery and desire not to understand. We want to understand. Actually, um, Richard Feynman, the great physicist, put it well when he said, uh, when you, an artist, sees a red flower, you're moved by its beauty. When I, a scientist, sees a red flower, I'm also moved by its beauty, but also by the knowledge that the red colour is favoured by natural selection to attract insects to pollinate it. He got that wrong, actually, because insects can't see red. (laughs) (laughs) But the sentiment is right. (laughs) Red red flowers are probably aimed at hummingbirds or other vertebrate predators, I mean, not predators, pollinators, who, who, who do see red. As an example of that, in the beginning of climbing Mount Improbable, you talk about the fig. You say there is genuine paradox and real poetry in the fig, uh, enough subtleties to exercise an inquiring mind and enough wonder to uplift an aesthetic one. I just think it's such memory, a gorgeous line. <laughs> I couldn't do that word for word. Perfect. I it, studied. Well, it, it, I, it's, that book starts off by saying, I've just been listening to a lecture about the fig. It was not a scientific lecture. It was a philosophical lecture. Uh, and the lecturer, having talked a lot about all sorts of artistic ways of approaching the fig, said he suspected that the fruit in the Garden of Eden, the forbidden fruit, was not an apple, but a fig. Well, I said that that kind of thing irritates me. Um, because it doesn't contribute anything. Of course, there was no Garden of Eden, so what does it mean? And, of course, it does mean something to a literary scholar. In in some sense, if I may put it this way, it had to have been a fig. It kind of feels right that it should be a fig. Well, I don't give a damn how it feels. I want to know the truth, and the truth is there was no Garden of Eden. So I then said that the fig actually, as you've just quoted, has wonders enough for, I I can't do it word for word, like, like Jana can. And so I returned in the last chapter to a minute and detailed explanation of the fig and its relation to fig wasps, which are fig sole pollinators. It's an astonishingly complicated, beautiful story, much too complicated for me to remember. I sweated blood over that Do you want chapter. me to do it? <laughs> I bet you can't. I, I, it, it, it's too complicated. But um, it is the last chapter of Climbing Mount Improbable. I'm pretty proud of that last chapter, although I couldn't possibly write it again now, because I... I <laughs> I'd have to read up all the details again. It is a wonderful passage where you describe the fig uh, as an entire garden in and of itself oh, yes. with flowers yeah. and with <clears throat> wasp pollinators, that some of which live their entire lives inside this garden. Yes. The chapter is called A Garden Enclosed, which you will all, of course, recognize from the Bible. It's from the Song of Songs, sometimes wrongly called the Song of Solomon. A garden enclosed is my beloved. So a fig is actually a garden enclosed. It's a, a flower garden turned inside out. It's a dark garden with a little hole in the top of the of the fig and each species of fig there are about 900 separate species of fig and every one of them has its own species of fig wasp which is its sole pollinator isn't that a marvelous thought and the details differ 
but the pollination is done inside this dark garden enclosed, uh, and it involves, for example, male fig wasps doing the rounds of the garden and inseminating female fig wasps inside before they're even born. So the male fig, fig wasp copulates with unborn fetuses. And then when the female hatches out, she flies out of this fig, looks for another one. But the, the details differ from species to species, and they're all wonderful. There's this beautiful description when the female enters the fig that she recognizes as one of her kind and rips off her wings in order to get through to the inside of the figs, weeks she will no longer need. But it's quite a brutal process. That is so, and it, it's similar to, the, to what happens to a queen ant. You know, queen ants have wings and they fly out of, to found a new colony. And then when a queen ant has founded a new colony, she loses her wings, often by actually biting them off. So wings are all very well if you need them to fly, but they're a hindrance if you're going to live underground. And so she, she actually bites off her wings. In the case of the female fig wasp, the wings are torn off as she struggles through the hole in the top of the fig. It's a spectacular chapter. It really is. It's a spectacular story. And, and it really invokes that wonder that you describe. You use Douglas Adams' quote, I believe it's in the opening of The God Delusion, where he says, isn't it enough that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? And that's just a perfect demonstration. I, how I miss him. How I miss him. Yes, you were friends. Yeah. Yes. Of your titles, we've already mentioned some. I have title envy with you. You have wonderful titles. So. Unweaving the Rainbow, Climbing Mount Improbable. You have a lot of books, so I'm not going to list them all. And uh, The God Delusion, and a, none so misunderstood as probably your most read book, famous book, The Selfish Gene. It is a lesson that before you criticize a book, read you it. have to go further than just reading it by title only. You have to read the somewhat lengthy footnote, which is the book itself. <laughs> The selfish gene has been misunderstood as a statement that all living creatures are selfish. It's almost the opposite of that. And it's misunderstood as meaning that we either are selfish or we ought to be selfish. Those are all grotesque misunderstandings, which I suppose I should have anticipated. But I didn't think that people would stop at just reading the title. How naive of me. <laughs> You've said it should be called the selfish gene and uh, with the emphasis on gene to distinguish it from the selfish organism. That's right. If you think about it, you know, there was one philosopher, a silly, remarkably silly philosopher, who began her critique by saying, genes cannot be selfish any more than biscuits can be altruistic or something. She went on like that. About them. And of course, if you're that naive, of course genes can't be selfish. However, I had thought that by applying the adjective selfish to the noun gene, I was immune to misunderstanding because any fool knows that a gene is just DNA. And of course, DNA cannot be selfish in the same sense as a human being can. If I called it the selfish elephant or the selfish lion, that really would be open to misunderstanding because elephants and lions have big brains and it's perfectly feasible that they might be selfish in the same way as humans are, are, are selfish. I thought I'd immunize myself to that misunderstanding by talking about the selfish gene. The book is actually about how selfish genes give rise to altruistic individuals. 
And I'd love to talk about the gene as immortal and selfish, because I think that genetics has become so widely part of the conversation that people are becoming more scientifically literate and understanding genetics. And yet this is something I don't think is widely appreciated. And I really got from, from your books, which is that the gene is striving for immortality while we are just a kind of disposable vehicle for the gene. You put it so well. The gene invented us. That's that's exactly right. It is, the gene is immortal. And and one of the things I perhaps should have done is called the book The Immortal Gene, which actually sounds a bit more poetic, a bit more spiritual than the selfish gene. And I, I perhaps went wrong with that. But genes are immortal in the sense that because they are coded replicas in every generation of the previous generation, it is theoretically possible for a gene in the sense of a stretch of code, just like computer code, to be immortal, or at least to last for a very, very large number of thousands or even millions of generations. And what that means, what that immortality means, is that at the end of a very large number of generations, the genes that are good at surviving are the ones we see. And the reason they're good at surviving is that they're good at programming the development in every generation of individual bodies. I call individual bodies survival machines for the genes that they bear. So the individual is a disposable survival machine, which is built by its genes, passes on its genes to 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 its offspring and then dies. So the immortality of the gene is what singles the gene out as the unit of natural selection. So any other alleged unit of natural selection, like the individual or the group, is a misunderstanding. Uh, The true unit of natural selection, that which survives or does not survive in the long run, is the gene rather than rival genes, so-called alleles. It really shifted my perspective on uh, this. It really gave me a jolt, the idea. And you say things that are so clearly obvious, but you provoke the reader to really think about it. Things like you donate only your DNA to your progeny. You You don't give them... One cell, that comes from food. Legs are made of food, you said. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so that really is what we're passing on. We owe this really to the 19th century German biologist, August Weismann. He didn't put it the same way I do, but he put it in the form that the, the genetic material, he didn't know about genes, but the genetic material is a river which flows through time. The main river is the parent to child to grandchild to great grandchild stream. And within each generation, there's a side branch of the river which is the body of the individual, what I call survival machine, in that generation. And it's almost as though the gene thought, oh, this is a good idea. If I make an organism, I can have faster reflexes, I can sprint, I can run farther. A lot of the genetic changes happen on very slow timescales. So it was an invention, in some sense, of DNA to build organisms that could carry it around and help it survive. That's just the way I put it, and you can immediately see how open to misunderstanding that is. The gene thought to itself, I know what I'll do, I'll build a body. Um, I mean, another, another way to put it is if you take a really big body like an elephant, you could say an elephant is a gene's way of making more genes. That's not original with me. An elephant is a gene's way of making more genes. And you could regard, from a programming point of view, you could regard an elephant as a gigantic computer program whose end product is the passing on of the instructions that, that, that built it. It's a gigantic digression on the ordinary generation to generation descent. Bacteria do it without bothering to build elephants. They do it rather more directly. 
and they're, and they're very successful at it. And you'll notice my croaking voice, which is probably due to bacteria. But a minority of the DNA in this world uh, has discovered more elaborate and roundabout ways of propagating itself, such as building this gigantic digression in the computer program, which is an elephant body. And as you say, all of our ancestors were successful in the sense of passing on our genes. So ancestors are uh, rare, that's while right. descendants um, are more plentiful. That's right. Um, I think I put it that you can, every one of us can look back on our ancestors as an unbroken chain of successful individuals, where successful means that they achieved at least one heterosexual copulation and survived long enough to rear the children or whatever was necessary to propagate the genes that made them do it. Now, let's be clear, because our audience is very sensitive. You are definitely not homophobic. <laughs> I've heard you. You have to be terribly on your guard, don't you? <laughs> we'll talk about Twitter later. Um, Let's not. <laughs> oh, now you threw me off. So the gene in that sense is selfish. And that's the sense in which you mean that it is selfish because the gene is fighting to survive and more the, than the organism That's right. Is. And one of the ways in which it fights to survive is by building altruistic organisms. Right. So I love that as the major argument in the selfish gene is that it is definitely about altruism as being in our code, being possibly an incidental or, or a misfired byproduct of our code, but it's in our code. Uh, yes. And, and it would only be a misfiring in those cases where it does not actually serve the interests of the gene. For example, when a cuckoo follows its built-in program. And the built-in program says, look after and feed any small squawking thing in your nest. And other birds from other species exploit that built-in rule. And in some cases, it looks as though, the, as though natural selection has worked on the host species to avoid being fooled by cuckoos. In other cases, it hasn't. So how do you justify this claim that a selfish gene leads to altruism and kindness? In human beings. Oh, well, um, two, two ways. Uh, one is that altruism towards kin, such as children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, sisters, brothers, and so on, um, because they have a statistically high probability of sharing the same gene for altruism. I mean, a gene for being altruistic towards your niece, for example, has a 25% probability of being in the body of the niece that you care for. So if you feed your niece, then a gene that makes you feed your niece has a 25% chance of being passed on by the niece when she comes to reproduce. Um, so that, that's one way. And the obvious example of that is, of course, the, the, the parent-offspring relationship. Parents care for their young. There's no actual genetic reason why caring for your own children should be favored any more than caring for your sisters or brothers, because in both cases, the odds that the gene for caring is in the body of the beneficiary is 50%. But it's more convenient, it's more practical to care for your own children, because they're younger than you, your siblings may be older than you, and less in need of care, and so on. But genetically speaking, there's no difference between caring for your own offspring and caring for your siblings. And we see altruism in animal behavior as well, even altruism. chimps, which get a bad rap. Yes. I mean, and altruism doesn't have to be kin-related. It can be reciprocation-related. It can be, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It can be uh, where something like a chimp would, would remember which individuals of the troop have done a good turn in the past. A, a nice example of this is the work of Wilkinson on uh, bats, vampire bats, which feed on blood and the thing about these vampire bats is they feed at night. They're finding a large vertebrate such as a cow to suck the blood of. And it's a very hit and miss affair. Sometimes they strike lucky. When they strike lucky, they come back to the roost 
to the daytime roost gorged with blood, whereas when they're unlucky, they come back to the, to the roost starving and in real danger of starving to death. And so reciprocation arrangements are very powerful. Individuals who, when they replete with blood, it regurgitates some to other individuals who are starving to death. Then the following night, it may be the other way around. The, the individual to whom you did the good turn may be the one who struck lucky and came back to the daytime roost gorged up with blood. So reciprocation is a very, very powerful force in these vampire bats. And Wilkinson was able to show that it only works for bats that know each other. And the individuals who know other individuals, uh, if they don't know each other, they don't regurgitate, they don't give blood. That's an extreme example, but reciprocation is probably powerful, in, not so powerful, but still powerful in lots and lots of species. You see, uh, again, the chimps that get a bad rap. We had Franz de Waal here for a conversation on animal consciousness, and I uh, believe you've interviewed him before and spoken to him, and he describes how even these very aggressive chimps will console each other. They have very complicated friendships and relationships, and they care about fairness. And this was, uh, his work originally was considered radical when he first began working on these things. Franz de Waal knows his chimps very well indeed. He does not understand evolutionary theory, however. He thinks that people like me, who promote the idea of the selfish gene, are advocating selfishness, for example. And he thinks that by showing that chimps are nice to each other within their own troop, that somehow goes against our theory of the selfish gene. Absolutely not. We are trying to explain altruism by the selfish gene, as I've said before, and you've said before. So... So you're when not he, surprised. When he, when he sets it up as a kind of selfishness versus altruism, and the fact that chimps are altruistic to each other with it is somehow evidence against the selfish gene theory. That is poppycock. So you would say that's evidence that it's in our genetic code. Actually, it could be used in favor of your argument. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's not yeah. just a social norm. Yes. And of course, chimps are very far from altruistic towards members of other troops. They indulge in wars. So just before we turn to uh, the idea that we need God to be good, because this is also a counter argument if it's in our genes, I wanted just to ask you about the argument people make about group selection, which I know you don't buy. So the idea that, well, we're altruistic, not because we have an individuated selfish gene, but because it's important to us to see the survival of the group. That really follows from, my objection to that really follows from what I said before, that it's genes that are immortal. So genes can program individual bodies to work for the survival of relatives and reciprocators, and that we understand. So the individual is a plausible vehicle for the immortal genes. If you can find an example where genes influence group behavior, then the group becomes a plausible vehicle as well. I don't believe there are, well, many or, or even any examples where the group is a unit of vehicle in that sense. You, you raised the excellent counter argument that if uh, one person just decides to be phenomenally selfish in the group, that the timescale on which their survival matters is much shorter That's right. than the timescale of the group. So the group could be wiped out before anyone notices that the selfishness is not advantageous to the group. That's right. And, and I those think people, about climate science. Yes. I think. I mean, fortunately, humans uh, are, can rise above all that. And humans are indeed capable of looking ahead to the welfare of the group. Not all of us do that, but at least some of us do. Al Gore, for example. So I can assert that until humans came on the scene, there was no foresight. There was no looking ahead to welfare. So if the survival selection on selfish genes is actually driving the species extinct, which has almost certainly happened, 
then there's no mechanism for stopping that. The species just will go extinct, and most species have gone extinct. But humans are the one exception, a wonderful exception. We can look ahead. We can say, if we go on behaving like this, then it will be terrible for the future of, li of life on Earth. That's nothing that never happened before in the history of the world. Humans are unique in their capacity to look ahead to the future and take steps for future welfare. The selfish genes cannot do that. It makes you think of the survival of the group depending on changing our attitudes towards the climate versus the individual who behaves selfishly for short-term profit and denies the evidence of climate yes, science. Yes, it does make you think that, uh, but you have to rise above Darwinism. We're, we're no longer... Uh, doing Darwinism when we say that. We, we, we've, re we've removed ourselves from Darwinism. I've often said that I'm a staunch Darwinist when it comes to explaining why we're the way we are, but I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to prescribing how to organize our society, how to organize our politics. When you say we don't need God to be good... Are you in this camp of atheists? There are two. One is, it seems, I mean, there are more than two. This is not subtle enough, but it, religion simply is not true versus religion is harmful, whereas some people will hold both of those ideas at once. Well, as a scientist, I'm mostly interested in whether it's true, but insofar as I think about its harmful effects, it, it certainly can be extremely harmful. And I'm open to persuasion that it can be good as well. But in neither case, does that bear upon the interesting question of whether it's true? Now, your good friend Christopher Hitchens was very aggressive, very much in the, when he says religion poisons everything, is very much in the camp that religion should be obliterated. I remember you said about Christopher Hitchens, actually, if you are a religious apologist and you are invited to debate Christopher Hitchens, decline. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, he, he saw uh, the Abrahamic God as a kind of, celestial dictator, um, a celestial Kim Jong-un, um, and uh, heaven would be a kind of celestial North Korea. So um, his, his driving motivation, I would say, was a moral and political one. My driving motivation is a scientific one, but I'm prepared to endorse his belief that religion poisons everything. And tell me why you think religion is not required for us to be good. I heard your genetic argument. I think we all heard that. But do you believe that this pressure, if we remove the pressure of religious belief, that somehow we will fall into anarchy and people will be burning well, the I mean, streets? The, yes, the, the, this is one of the things that's poisoning American political life. I think that so many, many people, including members of Congress and people who vote for them, think you need religion in order to be a moral person. They cannot understand how it's possible to be a moral person without religion. When you think about the ways in which religion might make you a moral person, it's ghastly. I mean, think about, so take, take the Bible, for example. If we based our moral values on the Bible, we would be stoning adulterers to death. We would be... Well, that does happen, sadly. It does this happen, exactly. This is a exactly, world in which this exactly. happens. Stoning people who break the Sabbath by picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. It's possible, of course, to find nice verses in the Bible. They're pretty rare, but you can find them. You can cherry pick. You can go through and say, well, we're going to scrap that verse and that verse and that verse. Oh, here's a nice one. We'll have that one. Scrap this one, scrap this one, scrap this one. Oh, that's another nice one. But the criterion by which you decide which are the nice verses and which are the nasty verses has to be extra biblical. It has to be a criterion that's based on something other than the Bible. Obviously, otherwise it's circular. 
in which case, whatever that criterion is, let's go straight for it and cut out the middleman, which is the Bible. Why bother to use that criterion to decide which verses you like and which verses you don't like? Just cut out the whole Bible and decide what's good or, or, or bad on the basis of the very criterion which you would have used to decide which verses were good and which were not. Yes, I know you're very outraged by injustices that are hidden behind the cloak of faith or protected by the cloak of faith. I got into a debate in anticipation of your arrival with someone where I brought up honor killings, like in Pakistan, where there was a recent case of a brother who was offended by his sister's social media and strangled her. And he absolutely confessed to the murder, but he thought he would be acquitted because it was an honor killing. And the argument I was having in this building was whether that was our business to have opinions about that, given that that's his faith. I, I, of course, got very incensed, but I'd rather hear you be incensed. Hiding behind faith as a, as a reason, as a, as a justification for murdering somebody. It is a fact that there are people who say, oh, well, it's his faith, so we, we can't reproach him for that. It's, it's his business. It's, it's part of their culture. What a condescending, patronizing thing to say. It's part of their culture to murder a young woman who, for example, is seen in conversation with a man, not her husband. That's an honor killing. What a patronizing, condescending thing to, to say, oh, we give that a free pass, we justify that. We are feminists where it comes to American women, but when it comes to women in Pakistan, it's none of our business. That's their faith. What a condescending, patronizing thing to say. Why do you think evolution provokes particularly religious people into such paroxysms of hate? I mean, I study the origin of the universe and I don't get the hate. Well, actually, I don't want to spoil it, but I don't get that degree of hate. Actually, before we answer that question, can I ask you to read some of your fan mail? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> These are I, love letters I have, I to have... Professor Richard Dawkins. Yeah. I have, on two, two occasions, put on YouTube my own readings of my fan mail, um, my <laughs> hate mail. and um, The funniest thing and, you've ever seen. And these, these are, I, I'm, I've been quite startled by how many people actually like this and are sort of begging me to do it again. Um, so, I'm making him um, do it again. So Jana asked me to, to read a couple of new ones, which I haven't already done. I salute only Jesus. When I was praying in depth with my prayer group, Jesus told me that you are the devil. I saw him with my own eyes, eyes that were created by him. He spoke to me directly. He said that you do Satan's evil work. My fellow humble Christians said that when I was praying, I was floating, floating off the ground. That's proof that gravity is just a theory. I, I often say to that, well, why don't you go and jump off a high story? <laughs> just like evolution. See how easy it is to prove you wrong. Why doesn't the moon fall down to earth if there's gravity? I can feel that one. I am not a monkey. It's so obvious how stupid science is. Put that in an experiment. Test how hot hell is when you hopefully die soon. Bring your prestigious scientific tools so you can accurately measure it. God will smite you. I would have you burned alive, but I'm a Christian, and that's... <laughs> and that's not what Jesus Christ would do. I would only do that if I was an atheist. You should be happy that I'm not an atheist, because if I was, I would do horrible things to you. Have you ever had a cactus shoved up your ass? That's only a taste of what I like to think about doing to you. You should be thankful that there is religion, because if there wasn't, we would come after you 
You are a shit-eating fascist, like Hitler. You can go burn forever in hell while Hitler fucks you. You are the kind of person who would have eaten from the tree of knowledge. You are the snake who tempted Eve. You tempt happy Christians into hell with your books and your videos of evil. Their blood is on your hands, Dick Dawkins. Just like a blind watchmaker can't make a watch, you can't make a person, only God could. Why don't you fucking realize it? Because you are a stupid atheist, fag. And I hope you die a horrible death, fag. Fuck you, your worst enemy. Hello, Dawkins, a few questions. This is, this is a new one now. <laughs> Hello, Dawkins, a few questions. Wanker, wanker, wanker. Ha-ha, you have to publish this in the good section. Oh, that's because on my website we have three sections for the, for the fan mail, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You have to publish this in the good section now because that's w where I picked the category. I know what that means. Take that, bitch. No cheating. This will not go to the ugly section. Should improve your website for gaggart. Pwned, bitch. Fuck you. Fuck you, Dawkins. You pathetic leftist shill for Islam. Save the NHS. Fucking destroy the NHS. That's the National Health Service. <laughs> Ridiculous. I have to pay for old jihadists like you to get dental operations. Go suck Andy Chowdhury's dick, you shill for Islam. I think and, it was shit, is what he meant to say, but anyway, sorry. And go rape Karl Marx's dead corpse. F.A. Hayek forever, bitch. <laughs> Sign someone who hates your guts. Um, I'd like to add one, one more, um, which is my favourite after all those things, like hope you die a horrible death and things, and it's this. I hope you lose your watch and are late for an important appointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was worth it. <laughs> So you don't need God to be good. <laughs> Why, which is how I started to ask you, does evolution in particular provoke such animosity? It's a mystery to me. I mean, it's, it's simply a, a disagreement about a scientific matter and uh, we can agree to differ, we can look at the evidence. If we do look at the evidence, then it's impossible for any rational purpose to deny that evolution is true. Why it provokes such visceral horror as hatred is... I suppose, if I had to guess, it would be that the religion that you're brought up with from your parents becomes a part of your identity. So to attack your religion is rather like saying you have an ugly face. And I think it's a sort of tribal thing that there's actually good psychological evidence that what people believe owes, more, owes less to their examination of the evidence and more to the particular tribe, let's call it tribe, to which they belong. So if you hear something which goes against our people, our tribe, our in-group, then you re reflexively react with hatred uh, rather than looking at the evidence. Steven Pinker uh, has made the additional point that this actually might be a good strategy in the sense that if you go against your tribe, then you lose all friendship, you lose all influence, you lose your, perhaps even your income uh, if you're a priest. My foundation with, with the, uh, the Centre for Inquiry has a thing called The Clergy Project. We started The Clergy Project, which is a, a, we a website for clergy people who've lost their faith and become atheists, helping them to escape. If you're a clergy person who has become an atheist and you admit it, you lose your livelihood, you lose your respect of your community and so on. So Steve Pinker makes the point that to come out in favour of evolution if your entire tribe thinks it's evil means that you actually lose a tremendous amount of what's valuable to you. So it can be said to be a sort of rational strategy to embrace a falsehood if the tribe to which you belong also embraces the falsehood.
You discuss in Outgrowing God not just altruism and kinship, but maybe it's not such a hard distinction, morality in general. And as you said earlier, when you think at the level of society, you don't want to be a social Darwinist. You, you want to think of, of us being able to rise above some of our that's right, more genetically that, That's pretty much the, the final words of the selfish gene. Let, let, let's rise above Darwinism. So if genetically we're given, predisposed to altruism and a kind of a morality, why are we still evolving socially? Why was there ever in any group a notion that slavery was condoned and acceptable? Well, I mean, as we've seen, altruism towards kin and potential reciprocators is favoured by Darwinism. But now we, we no longer live in small groups where that would have been the case. We now live in big cities where the people that we meet and interact with on a day-to-day basis are unlikely to be either kin or potential reciprocators, yet we still follow the rule built into us by our ancestral natural selection when we did live in small groups where everybody you meet was kin, everybody you meet is somebody who could reciprocate uh, a favour later. That's not surprising because natural selection doesn't favour a kind of all-wise understanding of what's good for your selfish genes. It favours rules of thumb in the brain. So I mentioned the rule of thumb that enables cuckoos to exploit host species. The rule of thumb that they exploit is feed squawking things in your nest. Cuckoo puts its own eggs into the nest of, say, a reed warbler. And the reed warbler parent simply obeys the rule of thumb in its nervous system. And so the cuckoo benefits from that. And in the same way, we in our large urban civilized societies obey the rule that was built into us, be nice to everyone you meet, because they might be, they are probably kin or reciprocators. That rule is still there. So the fact that we tend to be nice to each other, the fact that we tend to show pity, compassion for each other, when we never, we're never going to meet again, is rather like, it's a kind of mistake, a blessed mistake, a wonderful mistake, a mistake we should all approve of, a mistake in the same sense as cuckoos exploit. Before we came on, uh, somebody came up to me and said that when he was 19, he was a born-again Christian. He was completely consumed by it. He had already been in a multi-year relationship with his girlfriend, and they were on a certain path, and then they discovered your writings. And uh, the phrase, maybe I'm projecting, but I believe the phrase he used was, it saved us. And I know that's ironic to go from born-againism and being saved to truly being saved. And you must, as an antidote to these hate mail, get quite a lot of testimonials like that. A lot. And I'm always very, very pleased to receive them. I've lost count of the number of times I get letters or, or my website gets letters along those lines. That's quite a huge impact from writing. So for something like Outgrowing God, if you can reach younger people, is that part of the motivation for having written a book for that generation? Yes, because I am distressed by the obvious fact that those people who are religious will almost certainly have the same religion as their parents. As you said, you object to atheist child. You very strongly object to calling a child Catholic child. Exactly. It, it, It is a child of Catholic parents. But for some reason, we in our society have accepted a convention. We talk about a Catholic child or a Protestant child or a Muslim child. You should be, you should have your consciousness raised so that you wince every time you hear that phrase, Catholic child or Protestant child. Don't ever let anyone get away with talking about a Catholic child. Stop them and say, you mean, of course, a child of Catholic parents. 
That child is too young to have made up her own mind as to what she actually believes about the cosmos and the origins of morality and so on. Speaking of the cosmos, I did notice you're very well read in physics. Do you have a special penchant for physics? Beyond well, biology, I hear you talk about physics a lot. I do my best. I mean, I, I cannot claim to understand the details of, because they're so profoundly difficult of modern, modern physics, but I make it my business. Actually, the last chapter of Outgrowing God talks about the remaining puzzles, the, the remaining gaps in which God can hide, uh, which are in things like the origin of the cosmos, because physicists don't fully understand where, say, the fundamental physical constants of the universe come from, things like the gravitational constant. They can calculate what the gravitational constant's value is, and they can calculate that if it was ever so slightly different, there would be no stars, no galaxies, no chemistry, and no life. And so it looks as though we are an incredibly lucky, improbable accident. It's not only the gravitational constant, it's half a dozen other uh, physical constants. And in the last chapter of Outgrowing God, I try to make the point that this is a remaining mystery, but we should take courage from Darwin, because before Darwin came along, it was an even greater mystery how living things could be so beautiful, so elegant, and have design apparently written all over them. Darwin solved the big problem, and that should give us courage to believe that physicists will, before very long perhaps, solve the lesser but still profound problems of where the laws of physics come from and the fundamental physical constants come from. We, you're <coughs> inspiring me to ask this question. We now know that there are 4,000 or so exoplanets identified, planets in other solar systems. And the projection is in our 300 billion stars that if one-fifth of them has planetary systems there with multiple planets, we could exceed the number of stars with the number of planets in the galaxy. It is um, a new thing that when the Drake equation was first put forward, the Drake equation is uh, a long equation specifying the whole series of unknowns, the likelihood that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe which might communicate with us. And one of the unknowns in the Drake equation was the number of stars which have planets. And we now know that probably m most, if not all, stars have planets uh, because exoplanets have been discovered by uh, wonderful, almost miraculously clever uh, techniques of astronomers. For example, looking at the Doppler shift of color of a star as a planet rotates around it. As you know, rotation is a mutual system. We think about the Earth rotating around the sun, orbiting around the sun, but actually they're both orbiting around their shared center of mass. So there is a slight shift in the position of the sun and of any other star caused by the planets rotating around it. And that shift shows itself in the spectrum of the light, either red-shifted or blue-shifted. See what I mean about physics? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize recently for the first discovery of an Earth-sized, just this month, of an <coughs> Earth-sized planet around a, a, a main star, a typical star. Well, this... this the kind of discovery meant that a major unknown in the Drake equation could be filled in, and it increases the likelihood that there are other life forms in, elsewhere in the universe. They could be very rare. I mean, it could be that there are, shall we say, only a billion other life forms. A billion is a tiny number compared to the number of planets we now know there are in the universe. So if there are only a billion life forms, the chances are that they're too spaced out, too rarefied, spaced out to ever encounter one another, which is rather a sad thought. So do you believe that natural selection and Darwinian evolution will be universal across the universe in terms of dictating the emergence of life? 
I would stick my neck out and say that however alien and strange and unknown life elsewhere in the universe, there's one thing we can be confident of. It will be Darwinian life. It will be based upon some version of Darwinian natural selection. And that means some version of genetics, almost certainly not DNA, probably some other um, self-replicating molecule that does the same job as DNA, but it will be Darwinian. That's my, I put my shirt on that guess, but it is only a guess. That's a beautiful sentiment when we think about evolution on our planet to our place and the larger scheme of the cosmos, which I think you do beautifully at the end of this book. I want to give our guests a chance to ask questions, but I feel that you have something on that paper. Oh, I, I just wanted to... <laughs> Do you want to... me to make my announcement first? It, yes. So we're going to have a book signing uh, with Richard. We ask that you take no pictures, selfies, and don't ask for personal inscriptions. The reason is that we won't be able to get to the end of the line before Richard has to leave, and so we want to give everyone a chance to, to get a signed book, and Richard has a way of putting it. I just made this up before we came on. No selfies and no dedication. That requires an explanation. I'm not a lazy reprobate, just trying to be considerate. You will applaud the rule if you are at the back end of the queue. <laughs> Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.